It's all set up. It's working. If we could share screen. Are you on Chrome? It's actually working? It is, it is working. <laughs> wow. What you're listening to is a bit of an experiment. Rob, do you see the my face in the square and the... Yes. Really? I do. Oh my God, it's working. Look at that. <laughs> We're trying out a new technology that can measure my blood pressure, my stress level, my oxygen level, all with a camera, a computer, and a doctor somewhere on the other end. Uh, I see there's a, the, the screens are divided between green and red, and I assume green is good, green is go, and red is you should be talking with the, the doctor, I take it, someone who can interpret this better than I can. What you're seeing right now is your actual heart rate, your actual respiratory rate, your heart rate variability, and other things like your pulse waveform. There's a stress level score. I'm sorry to say you seem a little stressed right now, Ken. Our doctor today is Nirav Shah. He's a senior scholar at Stanford University's Clinical Excellence Research Center. He's also a doctor who practices internal medicine. Nirav has seen the healthcare system from virtually every conceivable angle. As a practicing physician, a researcher, and now also the chief medical officer of ShareCare. And he's become convinced that telemedicine, digital health, and artificial intelligence can reshape how we think about healthcare in this country. So we're trying out a new Vital Signs app he helped create. This was developed in the age of COVID so that through remote video visits, one could help diagnose the level of risk for COVID. But certainly, when you can do Vital Signs at a distance without any other technology other than the actual camera that you're using for your video conference, imagine the possibilities how care, how access to care can improve. The pandemic has made us reimagine a lot of things, particularly healthcare. Many people have been voluntarily or involuntarily isolated, and many no longer feel safe showing up at the doctor's office alongside other people who might or might not have the virus. Just as the pandemic forced many students to remote learning, it has also driven many to telemedicine at a pace that would have seemed unthinkable just 18 months ago. What COVID did was take what we've said would happen over the next 10 years and made it happen in three weeks. At my own institution at Stanford, we went from zero to 75% of all of our primary care visits being done by video visits in literally three weeks. Going from zero to 75% in three weeks is an amazing phenomenon. It's almost as if we've let the genie out of the bottle. But should we? Or can we put it back in? From the Stanford Center on Longevity, Century Lives is here to start the conversation. I'm your host, Ken Stern. This season on the podcast, we ask what would a century-long life look like if we do more than just inherit the rules of the past? If we're able to reimagine how we live, how we learn, how we work, and how we take care of each other. If we could draw a new map of life. On this episode, healthcare and why longevity in the U.S., despite all the advances, is trailing further behind some other developed nations. I like to say that the U.S. has a perfectly designed $3.9 trillion healthcare delivery system. It's perfectly designed to deliver more and more health care. It's not designed to deliver more and more health. But what is it we want? We want health, not health care. And it's a combination of what's happened over time, of what the fee-for-service system has wrought. Many other countries have a universal payer or a single payer where all the 
fees go from one place. We have a series of middlemen everywhere throughout the healthcare industry, whether you look at insurance companies as being a middleman between Medicare and the consumer, when we look at the role of employers paying for healthcare out of salaries and wages, pre-salary, uh, pre-wage uh, income. So what's happened is there's a lot of distance between what you and I as a consumer of healthcare have and experience versus where the dollars and cents are flowing from. And so every layer, whether you look at pharmacy benefits managers, they all take a cut and add much more administrative burdens while removing the understanding between if I get an x-ray for my knee versus if I get an MRI for my knee, one might cost $25, one might cost $2,000, but for me as a consumer, I pay the same $30 copay. And so, of course, I want this, the, the more expensive, better technology, even if I don't necessarily need it, not realizing that over time what that means is that my actual salary, my wages have gone down relative to the rest of the world, that the cost of healthcare is now 18% of our GDP versus single digits in, in European countries where you live 5, 10 years longer despite having a, a much lower overall cost. And that's largely driven by the administrative costs, largely driven by the ways we use technology and the unnecessary care because we don't have team-based care, because we have transitions where we repeat tests, where we do handoffs between the hospital and home and nursing homes in ways that lead to costly readmissions and other problems. So that explains um, uh, the inefficiencies and the cost. But why do we have worse health outcomes than other uh, similarly situated healthcare systems? We have worse health outcomes because we don't pay for prevention the ways that other countries pay for. We pay for end-of-life care. Most of our money is spent on the last six months of life. If you look at where the dollars go, it's spent on the ICU. It's spent on catastrophic care as opposed to upstream early interventions, childhood care, vaccinations, and prevention. We know, for example, in New York State, if we had spent $1 on water fluoridation, the Medicaid program would save $14 in children's dental bills. But what does Medicaid pay for? It normally pays for the downstream consequences of not having fluoridated water. And that is a symptom across our entire healthcare system. We don't pay well for prevention, but we pay well for shiny gadgets and robots and uh, and nice technologies that add a lot to the costs of care when the cat's out of the bag, when you're already sick, rather than keeping you healthy in the first place. So, so let me just sort of press you on that, Narav. Uh, uh, you're now in the, uh, to a certain extent, in the shiny object end of, of, of medicine. What, what has drawn you there if you think that is a little bit of uh, evil in, in the system? Well, lots, a lot of the problem in the system was uh, tech, the way technology was adopted and used. For example, if you think of the electronic health record, when it was adopted in healthcare, it was a copy of the paper-based record turned into an electronic, think of it like a Microsoft Word form. So what took me five minutes to write on paper now takes, I have to type and move to all the forms and select from drop-down menus, and it takes literally twice as much time using these electronic health records than when I used to do things on paper. That kind of symptom of how we adopted technology has been the problem. With the newer technologies, what I'm very interested in is artificial intelligence. And what artificial intelligence is, is think of it as a form of 
ambient intelligence. The lights in your room today are an ambient intelligence. You turn on the switch, you forget about it, and the light makes everything easier to see. It makes all your work easier. Similarly, by adopting the right kind of ambient intelligence in healthcare, instead of healthcare being four times a year when you see your doctor, it can be with you, around you, in your daily journeys. It can nudge you toward those healthier behaviors. My uh, app reminds me if I haven't quite hit my 10,000 step goal for the day, and so maybe after dinner I'll go for a walk. Those kinds of small nudges can add up to a lot, and what artificial intelligence is doing now, it's becoming another member of the care team. A member of the care team, like the doctor, like the nurse, like the social worker, but the member of the care team who works for you 24-7 and does all the things that are boring, redundant, or hard to do for humans, AI can do those very well. But can AI, can artificial intelligence do everything really well? And what about people who lack access to good Wi-Fi or computers? People who are rapidly tumbling into what is being called the digital divide. From a public health standpoint, we really need to be thinking about how is it that we're going to really help everyone together increase access together without creating newly vulnerable populations. That's Andrea Jonas, a clinical assistant professor in the Division of Pulmonary Allergy and Critical Care Medicine at Stanford University Hospital. She is a proponent of telemedicine, but for the last two years, she's lived a natural experiment in how it works in real life. At the beginning of the pandemic, the federal government enacted 31 emergency rules to facilitate the rapid implementation of telehealth practices, and they've changed her life in many ways. She joined us from the only spare room in the hospital that she could find. Well, I am calling from the pulmonary chest clinic. It is, gosh, it's now 10 a.m. or 10:12 a.m. my time in the on the Pacific Coast. Um, I'm sitting in a small kind of yellow tinged room that's, gosh, maybe seven by nine feet. And that banging sound we're hearing? Yeah, so I happen to be situated next to a hallway and there's an automatic door that's right outside my room. Um, and as people hit the wall switch, the door kind of swings open and then shuts. Um, and it's, as you can, as you can hear, it's a, um, a frequented hallway. As evidenced. <laughs> we asked Andrea how her day in the pulmonary clinic is going. We've got a list of, I think, 12 patients. So we'll find out how our patients are doing, if our, hopefully, medical interventions helped any of them improve, um, adjust our plans, go around, talk with them, see how they're feeling, let them know any updates in, in, their, in their condition or in our, our thoughts on how to treat them. And, um, you know, if the last few days are any indication, I'll probably be on my feet until about 8 p.m. and then I'll come back to this very seat and start working on some notes. Andrea has a very long day ahead of her, one that includes treating patients who are critically ill with COVID. So I took the opportunity to ask her, how are you doing through all of this? I, I'd say it's been, it's been challenging. It's been at turns heartbreaking. It's been at turns encouraging as we see some patients recover. And it has been at turns demoralizing as we see a lot of the distrust that's out there about healthcare professionals, about vaccines, about the FDA, the CDC. Um, I'd say that this Delta surge, I think um, Dr. Fauci put it best that this is a uh, pandemic now of the unvaccinated. So encountering that sort of skepticism about healthcare, about vaccines, um, in addition 
to uh, doing our very best to administer the very best medical care has been a challenge. With some of our patients who are COVID infected, they go on to develop a COVID long haul syndrome. I know these um, syndromes have been in the news on and off. And part of the multidisciplinary care for those patients is getting them established quickly with a pulmonologist. So sometimes they're unable to come in person to a pulmonary clinic visit. That could be because they're still quarantining from their COVID infection. It could be that they're living far away away and coming to a subspecialty center is just a very onerous transport issue for them. Um, so for those patients, we've been able to get them seen in our clinic in a very expedited fashion by virtue of, um, of being able to offer a televisit, um, which previously wasn't um, as commonly used an option. So with that, we're able to establish a relationship with them, understand better what the issue is, provide recommendations for what the next steps in treatment are going to entail, um, and in that way, really expedite the care that they're going to receive and, and try to optimize their recovery. We asked Andrea about the drawbacks of telehealth for her patients. We talk a lot in the healthcare setting um, and in health, you know, healthcare tech in general about the digital divide, thinking about our patients who don't have that sort of facile connection to the internet, whether it's because they did not grow up as digital natives, whether they don't have the resources of having a Wi-Fi broadband connection in their home, whether it's because they don't have a smart device or a computer in their home. How can we limit those barriers for those patients? Um, I know we there's more access for people to go to their local library and have you know access to the internet, access to, to digital information that way, but that's certainly not the sort of environment where you're going to be having a, a private conversation with your healthcare provider. So I'm curious on that point, um, uh, uh, so your lived experience with people using their phones for, for telehealth, because I know a lot of people don't have, or, or, or certain segments of the public don't have easy access to um, uh, Wi-Fi in their home or broadband or a laptop, um, or, uh, um, but most people have phones at this point, um, and that's, I think, more equitably distributed. I'm sort of curious whether you found that people are using their phones for uh, televisits, and that's, that solves the gaps, at least uh, to a certain degree. Yeah, I would say that smartphone access certainly expands the reach of of telemedicine into people's homes. Like you said, a lot of our patients, even if they don't have a computer and Wi-Fi in their home, a lot of our patients will have a smartphone or they'll know someone who has a smartphone who can help them out. So they might have a child or a grandchild who's able to help them navigate the healthcare system. Um, so you're absolutely right that smartphones do expand the reach, but it certainly doesn't completely address the issue. You can imagine that there are populations who are um, relatively socially isolated, might not have a smartphone, might not have the, the physical ability to m manually operate a smartphone, or if they are um, suffering from dementia, um, you know, might really need that assistance to access healthcare. I worry also not only about our older patients, but also patients for whom uh, English is not, a, who don't have proficiency in English. A lot of web-based apps are generally in English. Um, there's not a lot of opportunity or options to translate that to other languages to help them navigate what might be an unfamiliar inf interface. There are other more subtle issues with telemedicine that Andrea feels affect the doctor-patient relationship. I think some of the main issues that I hear, people feel like they don't really get to know their clinical team. They feel like they haven't really had a, a connection with them. So I, I think that something that it's easy to overlook is that sort of therapeutic relationship that's built in the clinical context. And if that's missing, then that trust in the healthcare 
team, that trust in the healthcare system, trust in the plan, a desire to carry out the testing or take the medication that they've recommended, um, those sorts of end goals don't get met because that, that first step, that trust, hasn't been built. And I think it could be for a huge variety of reasons that people feel like they're having difficulty establishing that bond. Um, again, it could be generational. It could be with the quality of the video or quality of the teleconnection that they had. If you're having audiovisual issues and you don't actually get to see your doctor's face, um, that could, you know, that right there could really undermine your ability to trust the healthcare system in general. Um, so for a huge variety of reasons, people will feel like that trust is not established. Um, I also think that there's going to be generational divides. I think that younger physicians, millennial physicians, are coming into the workforce, have a lot of confidence and familiarity with digital interfaces, um, and won't ne and aren't necessarily set in having in-person visits, so are more accepting of a transition to more of a hybrid model. I will say some of my colleagues really value seeing their patients in person. I, I don't blame them. There, there really is a lot of inherent value, a lot of intangible value that can be got there. It does feel, um, you know, it feels like you're truly meeting and emoting with someone when you see them in person versus when you'd only seen them virtually. So I don't want to understate the value of those in-person visits. But my sense, and um, again, this is only my opinion, and um, seeing how things have unfolded during this most recent Delta surge, my sense is that some version of a hybrid telemedicine and in-person visitation is going to be the way of the future. That may be what the immediate future will look like, as doctors, patients, insurers, and even regulators work with an existing models. But that's not enough for Nirav Shah as he thinks about how new technologies and artificial intelligence can create a whole new healthcare paradigm, one that focuses on early detection rather than extraordinary late-life measures, one that makes health information available to everyone all the time, not just for those who can afford the most expensive services. In that, Narav is not alone. The AI and healthcare market, just a fraction of the healthcare technology world, is projected to grow from about $4.9 billion in 2020 to more than $45 billion by 2026. But for Narav, it's not the market growth that is inspiring. It's what the healthcare system of the future might be. We learned from COVID that there could be an 80-year-old who has no chronic conditions, whose real age essentially is about a 45-year-old, versus there are 30-year-olds who have so many chronic conditions and obesity and depression and other issues that their physical body age is closer to that of a 65 or 70 year old. And COVID didn't care what your numerical age was. COVID affected those who were older uh, in terms of the chronic conditions uh, universally much more than those who were younger. So our understanding of how COVID, COVID was that mirror that said, how are you actually living your life? How, how much uh, burden has your body undergone? How much can we do to keep you healthy in the first place so that you, we all end up as 80-year-olds who can still play tennis? That's the hope, that we understand the importance that it doesn't mean that the day you retire, age 65, you start saying, okay, I'm going to travel. I'm going to start taking care of myself. It actually starts when you're 20 or even younger in terms of the habits you form, the kinds of diet you choose, the kind of activity you choose, and that's going to have a fundamental impact 
on your entire lifespan, not just for the next five, 10 years. Yeah, so it's one of the interesting things that I think uh, of the things I've learned from these conversations is sort of longevity begins at birth. Um, and a lot of the decisions made in the first years are actually have consequences 85 in terms of healthy longevity more than anything else, not just longevity, but healthy longevity. Uh, how, you said sort of the, you're hoping that the healthcare system has learned some lessons. Talk about, you know, whether those lessons are being learned and what, what changes could be made to enhance healthy longevity over, over the life course. As I mentioned earlier, we're moving away from that fee-for-service system to a value-based system. When the same people, your doctors, are paid not just on what they do for you today, but their bonuses are based on how long and how well you live because they're part of the insurance company, suddenly it's in their financial and other interests to focus on what are the things we can do to keep you healthy in the first place in ways that it's always been in their back of the mind, but this will be front of mind. So that means it changes the system of how we think about care and reprioritizes things like all of the vaccines and known effective preventive behaviors and interventions, much more than the heroic end-of-life behaviors and medicines, which are great and are important, but they count much less when you look at the whole population. So our whole mindset has changed and understanding how we can impact not only health through the healthcare system, but also through where we live, work, play, pray, all of the above. So, so as, as I've listened to you talk, uh, my stress level apparently has gone way down. So you, you have a very soothing way of describing the healthcare of the future. Is, is the notion that this eventually becomes ambient and part of our ability to monitor oursel ourselves and know if something's right or wrong on almost a continuous basis? Absolutely. Depending on how much you want to know, <laughs> you may not want to know all the time, <laughs> yeah. but to the extent that this technology exists and based on subtle changes in your face, as you can see, it's just picking up parts of your face. It can tell what your heart rate is. Imagine the waveforms that it's capturing. And I can imagine a not too distant future when this is built into every telehealth app, built into every doctor patient visit that is a remote visit and in consumer-facing apps, I'm hopeful that with the, these, some of these technologies and with the post-COVID era, we will find more meaning and purpose. And that will help us lead, not, not necessarily to doubling the longevity, but it'll double the quality of our lives. And that's all, almost more important. From age, I turned 49 last week. Uh, for for the, my next half century, I want to make sure that I'm doing just as much or more meaningfully and purposefully as I did during my first half century. And that quality of life, not just quantity, is going to make the big difference in terms of how we think about the lives we've led. That's Nirav Shah, a senior scholar at Stanford University's Clinical Excellence Research Center and the chief medical officer of ShareCare. We also heard from Andrea Jonas, a clinical assistant professor in the Division of Pulmonary Allergy and Critical Care Medicine at Stanford University Hospital. On the next episode of Century Lives, we dive into the world of higher education and ask, is it enough to keep us up to date and employable for our entire century-long lives? College for All had a substantial downside, and that is that uh, if someone has 
not been able to finish high school or for whom the academic side of high school was not pleasurable, right, let alone successful, College for All is a terrible idea because uh, it, it essentially provides more ineffective medicine. And in fact, in the process of pursuing College for All, the Americans let other avenues to well-compensated employment atrophy. Century Lives is produced by Kerry Thompson and Abba Ahmed Begi. Century Lives is a production of the Stanford Center on Longevity, where our mission is to support ideas and research so that century-long lives are healthy and rewarding ones. You can find out more about us at longevity.stanford.edu. Support for the Stanford Center on Longevity comes from the Annenberg Foundation, dedicated to addressing the critical issues of our time through innovation, community, compassion, and communication. Thanks for listening. I'm Ken Stern.